Hello, everybody. Thanks so much for coming to yet another round of our lunchtime lectures here at UCL. My name is Jason Dittmer, and I'm in the Department of Geography. I'm very pleased to be here to introduce today's speaker, uh, Dr. Adam Smith from the UCL Department of History. Uh, he's been a historian of the 19th century, uh, and he has published a book called uh, American Civil War, available on Amazon.com. Uh, and today he is speaking to the topic, Did Democracy Cause the American Civil War? We're going to uh, have about half an hour, maybe half an hour plus, for uh, the lecture, and there'll be a few minutes for questions at the end. Thank you very much. Let's please welcome Dr. Smith. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for coming. Now, I hope you won't feel that I've um, brought you here under false perspectives. If I begin by saying that uh, if you want a, a one-word answer to that question, I'm afraid that answer is probably no. Um, that's partly, though, because uh, if you ask a slightly silly question, then you always get a slightly unsatisfactory answer. And the question, what caused the Civil War, such a superficially simple question, is phenomenally difficult to answer, not least because life, history, is never uh, as straightforward as cause and effect, that uh, implication of a mechanical relationship uh, implies. But having said that, um, sometimes in life, shorthands are necessary. And so if you did ever want a one-word answer to the question of what caused the American Civil War, then I'm afraid uh, I'm going to disappoint you further by giving you the really important answer, which is that that one-word answer has to be not democracy, but slavery. No serious uh, historian has questioned the centrality of slavery to the coming of the American Civil War for many generations. But the issue arises, uh, they're not of what uh, was the ultimate issue that divided North and South, that created the circumstances in which conflict was possible, but how and why it did. Slavery caused the American Civil War, but it caused it in complicated and sometimes in unexpected ways. This was not a conflict between a united anti-slavery North and a united pro-slavery South. And nor, and this is even more important, nor was it a conflict between a modern, industrializing, sophisticated, progressive nation in the North and a backward, neo-feudal nation in the South. That's a, an exaggeration, um, but that's... Um, that image of how the war came does um, crop up again and again in many history textbooks. It contains, of course, a kernel of truth. But I would argue that insofar as modernity is an issue in the coming of the Civil War, it's not that it pits a modern North against some kind of pre-modern South, but that modernity, aspects of modernity, act on both North and South during the 1840s to create the circumstances for war. And what I mean by that is that technological developments in print, um, the invention of the telegraph, which meant that uh, information could be transmitted uh, in moments uh, across the nation, uh, the mobilization by politicians of mass political parties using modern, uh, what in the 19th century were modern campaigning techniques. All of these things, which were aspects of America's 19th century democratic politics, 
were the factors that turned that underlying conflict over slavery uh, into war 150 years ago uh, in 1861. Now, um, the relationship uh, between democracy and the American Civil War is um, a somewhat paradoxical one. On the one hand, we think of the American Civil War quite often as representing the triumph of democracy. And that was very much how many people uh, at the time, not just in the United States, but here in Europe, also understood the meaning of the conflict. Uh, John Bright, the great um, British radical liberal um, politician, uh, wrote that if the North failed, if the Southern Confederacy succeeded in winning its independence in the American Civil War, then European democracy would be silenced and dumbfounded forever. Uh, one of my predecessors, a, a historian at UCL called E.S. Beasley, who was very involved in London labor radical politics, wrote at the time when the North eventually did triumph in 1865 that the defeat of the Confederacy would give a vast impetus to democratic sentiments in England. On some existential level, then, observers of the American Civil War saw um, democracy in a universal global sense as being at stake. And that, of course, is very much how this man, Abraham Lincoln, wanted people to imagine the American Civil War and wants us even now, as it were, to think about it. The Lan this Lincolnian vision of the war as a triumph of as an ultimate test and then uh, as a test and then ultimately a triumph of democracy is a Lincolnian vision. This is what he said at the beginning of the war, near the beginning of the war in July 1861. This is essentially a people's contest. On the side of the Union, it is a struggle for maintaining in the world that form and substance of government whose leading object is to elevate the condition of men, to lift artificial weights from their shoulders, to clear the paths of laudable pursuit for all, to afford all an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life. And he put it even more pithily in his famous Gettysburg Address in 1863, when he said that what the war was determining whether, was whether government of the people, by the people, for the people, uh, would perish from the earth. So in, this, in all of these ways, then, the Civil War seems to be a test and a triumph of democracy, but it was also, surely, a great democratic failure. The Civil War came about because the political institutions that existed in the United States in 1861 were unable to contain the conflict between North and South. Uh, the first seven slave states that seceded, the Deep South states, did so even before this man, Abraham Lincoln, became president. They seceded in reaction just to his election during the, the long interregnum between the election in November and what was then the inauguration in March of the following year, March 1861. Um, and so they seceded in response to a lawful election because the election of Abraham Lincoln as the first Republican Party president, the new Republican Party, which represented the anti-slavery views, or at least the opposition to the extension of slavery, um, of many northerners by 1861. And southern slave states seceding in response to Lincoln's election made no bones about what their motivations were. 
It's quite clear if you read the ordinances of secession, the documents that southern state legislatures um, published to justify their decisions, that their motivations were the preservation of property. And what they meant by property was human property, property in slaves. The difficulty with maintaining a slave system is that you claim to have ownership of property that has voices and has legs. Your property is therefore inherently unstable. Millions and millions of US dollars were invested by Southerners in slavery in the years leading up to the Civil War. And it was that capital investment in human property which was, they thought, threatened by the election of a president who did not share their basic assumption that you could claim to have property in a human being. That is the Achilles heel of, of a slave system. It depends upon everybody else agreeing that you can uh, impose and justify your property rights within the polity. You need to be able to go to court to be able to get your property back if it runs away or um, if, it rebels, uh, if it rebels against you. And that was the threat that Abraham Lincoln was uh, posing. So here we have what seems to be um, an extraordinary situation of the world's, uh, in the early 19th century, the world's most advanced democracy, a country that celebrated, as in this painting here by the Missouri artist George Caleb Bingham, that celebrated its democratic values. This is a uh, painting from the early 1850s of an election taking place in Missouri, bathed in sunshine, with touches of drunkenness on the, on the, uh, the edges. There's a man there who's uh, probably drink, drunk too much whiskey, but it's fundamentally a celebration of the rational, critical process of um, democratic um, process. And, and yet it was this country, and only this country, the, 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 the nation that was celebrated and remarked upon and feared and, and perceived as being the quintessential democracy. It was only in the United States uh, that the process of transition from slavery to emancipation was accompanied by four years of bloody civil war, costing more than 650,000 lives. Everywhere else in the Western Hemisphere where um, emancipation took place, it did so without a war. And so my question is, what is the relationship between those two things? What is the relationship between the United States as the world's first democracy and the United States as the place where the most bloodiest war in the Western world took place between the defeat of Napoleon and the start of the First World War in 1914? I'm going to make three points about this. The first is that democratic politics empowered slaveholders. Now, what I mean by that is that slaveholders within the United States had a number of advantages not shared by slaveholders within the British Empire or the French Empire or in the Brazilian Empire or anywhere else uh, in the Western Hemisphere in the 19th century. They, first of all, had the advantage of a federal constitution um, that gave them the basic political unit, the state, which um, was the basis for the creation of the Confederacy. Um, without federalism, the American Civil War clearly couldn't have happened in the way that it did. They had the advantage of a constitution 
which in some significant ways gave them inbuilt advantages, advantages of representation. But for all of that, what I think really gave southern slaveholders power in the United States in the run-up to the Civil War was their capacity to build popular support for their positions. We have to ask why it was that only, the answer to my question of what, you know, why only in the United States did this great war happen around emancipation, one answer to that, the straightforward answer may be that only in the United States in the middle of the 19th century did slaveholders have the confidence, the arrogance to believe that in spite of the anti-slavery progress that had been made in the preceding 20 or 30 years, they could create a slaveholding republic and be proud of it. And they were proud of it, as the vice president of the Confederate States of America, Alexander Stevens, said uh, that the cornerstone of the new republic was the idea of slavery, the innate inequality of races. Um, how did southern slave owners have the confidence to believe that they could get away with what, in retrospect, seems to have been a reckless gamble? Well, I think it is because of the way they had been used over uh, many decades to building popular support, both within the South and within the nation as a whole. They were always a minority. Only a minority of Southern whites ever owned slaves, and for most of the history of the American Union, there were always more free states and many more people living in free states than there were living in slave states. And yet, time after time, slaveholders held the presidency of the United States. Time after time, it was slaveholding presidents or people sympathetic to slaveholders who appointed justices to the Supreme Court. Slaveholding Southerners dominated the Senate and all the important uh, committees. One of the main instruments that enabled them to do that was uh, the Democratic Party, the, or as 19th century people usually referred to it, the democracy, the mass national organization which was created in the 1830s in support of, the, uh, of President Andrew Jackson himself, a slaveholder, which attracted a broad coalition of support, including um, socialists, radicals in urban contexts in New York City and in other places, but which had as, his, as, as its bedrock idea the idea of white men's equality. And this was what may seem to us to be the great paradox on which 19th century American democracy was founded. The idea that you could be democratic, that you could only be democratic and give genuine equality to white citizens because your system was predicated on a system of racial exclusion and ultimately in the South of race-based slavery. Uh, so there was no tension in when uh, Democrats, capital D Democrats, members of the Democratic Party, many of them southern slaveholders, there's no tension between their advocacy of the idea of democracy and their advocacy of the uh, idea of race-based slavery. To them, the two things were predicated on each other. You could only have democracy if you had slavery. When the um, institutions that it enabled uh, southerners to keep hold of national politics collapsed as they did in the 1850s when the National Democratic Party eventually split. Um, then southern slaveholders turned to building support within their own section, within the South, for um, secession, to leave the Union. 
And one of the reasons why they were able to do this was because democratic politics over uh, many years had produced an image of the North that was distorted in critical ways. This is um, a man, John Imberden, um, who was campaigning when he said this for election to the Virginia Secession Convention. So this was a special uh, election to determine whether the state of Virginia, the state that had produced George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, whether that state uh, still the, with the largest number of slaves in the Union in 1861 should secede. Black Republicans, he said, that was always the term used by opponents to describe the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln. Black Republicans are religious and political fanatics whose undisguised purpose it is to destroy all our future prosperity and greatness by subjugating us and the other slave states to the uncontrolled domination and power of the North. And finally, under the forms of the Constitution, to affect the abolition of slavery and reenact here the dark drama of San Domingo. That's a reference to the uh, slave revolt in that island in the 1790s. So those kinds of images of the North enabled the South to take this step to separation. Not everybody agreed in the South with the rationality of secession. Not everybody agreed that it was the most judicious way of preserving their way of life. But once their state seceded, most white Southerners went along with it. This is a very revealing quote, I think, from a man called Jonathan Worth um, from upstate North Carolina, from the, the uh, hilly region where there were relatively few slaves uh, compared to the um, Piedmont regions of the state to the uh, east. I've been forced by surrounding facts to take sides, he wrote to his brother, in May 1861, after the secession of his state, North Carolina. I leave the flag of the Union because I'm subjected and forced to submit to my master, democracy. I think the South is committing political suicide, but my lot is cast with the South, and being unable to manage the ship, I intend to face the breakers manfully and go down with my companions. But ultimately, it was his, what he called his master, democracy, his need to submit to the will of the majority that forced him to go along uh, with the secession of the South. So democratic politics, I think, empowered slaveholders. And democratic politics also helped to shape northern sectional consciousness. In some ways, democratic politics created the North. This is the first page of a campaign songster, a book of campaign songs to be sung by the supporters of the new Republican Party in their first ever presidential election in 1856. Uh, they didn't win that election, um, but they came close enough to be able to imagine winning it the four years later in 1860. Um, and so sung to the tune of the Star Spangled Banner, this song um, talks about the discovery uh, of the North, the free North, um, uh, who had, um, uh, in the beginning of the second stanza, they asked us with sneers, can you show us a North? Does the North exist? But Fremont, their candidate in 1856, demonstrated this um, uh, sectional consciousness. The North now, in the hands of this new sectional Republican Party, was going to stand up for itself. Now, just as images of the North, uh, distorted images of the North, drove... Southerners into the arms of secessionists, 
So in the north, um, the images presented in the popular press uh, helped to uh, demonize the south and create the circumstances where people could imagine southerners as their enemies. This is a very famous incident uh, which took place on the floor of the Senate of the United States where a, an anti-slavery senator from Massachusetts, Charles Sumner, was brutally attacked, um, beaten almost to death um, by a southern congressman, Preston Brooks. The point about this is that in some ways this was not so exceptional. There were repeated incidents of violence on the floor of the Senate and the, and the House of the United States throughout the 19th century. What's special, what's particular about this incident is the way it was dramatized. It was a media event. Images like this were transmitted, were sold, were enclosed in newspapers, were reprinted in new illustrated magazines. So for the first time in the 1850s, people could see images of um, Southerners behaving in brutal ways. You see the caption underneath this image says, in, with heavy irony, Southern chivalry. Uh, argument versus clubs. M appalling abuse of an apostrophe there, um, <laughs> you'll notice. This is another image demonstrating the uh, northern view of the South, and this explains why so many northerners in the spring of 1861 were willing to go for war, to go to war, because they thought this would be a quick and easy and honorable a glory, uh, uh, a victory cover that would cover them in glory. This is how um, one northern cartoonist um, imagined southerners were recruiting for their army, um, having to um, push them into the recruiting station at, literally at the point of the bayonet, get them drunk on whiskey. You see the recruiting sergeant there is resting his, his board on a whiskey barrel. Uh, these guys are not going to be um, up for much of a fight um, against uh, Yankee soldiers. Uh, and of course this is a cartoon, but what it reflects is, is very uh, deep-seated notions about the degradation of Southern society, which were produced by anti-slavery propagandists who argued that poor white Southerners uh, were, um, uh, were so disempowered by the existence of um, slavery, um, were so degraded that they would be unable to fight. What Northerners failed to understand was that slavery in the South created a broad prosperity that didn't include everybody, but which did bind together um, white Southerners in ways uh, that most Northerners um, completely failed to recognize. What had happened, in other words, in the United States by the late 1850s was that there were two entirely separate national conversations. There was no mediated space. There was no neutral news media. Um, Northerners and Southerners were shouting past one another, saying to one another, you step over that line and, oh, you just did. Uh, th th there was no conception or understanding or ability to connect or relate uh, to the other side. And then my third and final point, then, is that democratic politics fed frustration with compromise and what was called politics as usual. The um, United States had been built on compromise. Many of the great politicians who had rose, risen to national prominence in the 18. 20s and 30s and 40s had been the compromisers. Compromise was, had been a good word, a word to, you were proud to be associated with, to put the national interest, the preservation of the union above um, petty or sectional or partisan concerns. 
That kind of politics was thoroughly discredited in the 1850s. One of the reasons, of course, was because the rising anti-slavery movement in the North um, argued that there was a higher morality, a morality of um, uh, the sanctity of human life and the principle um, that slavery was wrong, which transcended um, the compromises and the need to place the union or even the preservation of peace um, above those other higher moral principles. But this was also accompanied by the sort of sentiment that's represented in this, um, what I think this is a brilliant image, the seven stages of the office seeker. And this is dripping with contempt, this image, uh, showing um, the, the treating, the stumping, the begging for office, the corruption um, of uh, politicians. Huge anti-politician sentiment swept across the North in the 1850s, sweeping away many established politicians in both the Democratic Party and the other national party, the Whig Party, which indeed collapsed entirely uh, in the uh, early, in the early uh, to mid-1850s. The Republican Party, um, which arose in, into this context, um, presented itself as being uh, a new kind of party, uh, an anti-party sort of party, if you like. Um, these were people who, in the words of um, uh, Republican Party literature, were fresh from the loins of the people. Uh, people the, these were not professional politicians. This was always the claim. These were not professional politicians. These were people um, who were going to go into Washington with a new broom. Some of this may be sounding familiar to you. Uh, we're going to go into Washington with a new broom and uh, clean out, clear out the Augean stables. And this poor, hapless fellow is uh, James Buchanan, who was the Democrat elected in 1856, who is often, in some ways, I think, unfairly, he, he usually comes bottom of those polls that are occasionally done of American historians where you have to rank uh, you know, your, the presidents from best to worst. And James Buchanan often comes at the bottom. I mean, I took part in one of those surveys quite recently. I didn't put him at the bottom. I think there's something to be said for Buchanan. But the poor man, he did at the end of the day preside over the dissolution of the nation. So you can see why he often, he often doesn't do well. And, and the, the problem that Buchanan faced is that he was the ultimate pragmatist. He was a great admirer of Edmund Burke, the 18th century British philosopher, who was the great philosopher of pragmatism, the believer in the incremental... Um, uh, accumulation of wisdom, um, the respect for existing institutions, the idea that institutions are locally based and that it's perfectly acceptable to have one set of moralities and one set of institutions in one place and a different one somewhere else. Buchanan profoundly believed that. And he was a man out of his time because those kinds of ideas would have gone down extremely well uh, in, in politics 20 years uh, earlier. Um, but he was um, swept out of office in the face of this rising uh, anti-politician um, sentiment. Uh, you can imagine, still on Buchanan, you can imagine the, the sad scene at, at, at Buchanan's uh, New Year's Day levee at the White House, where traditionally, like other previous presidents, he invited people around to come and shake his hand. And he stood there forlornly in the... Uh, in, the, in one of the reception rooms downstairs in the White House as, as senators from the South and senators from the North and representatives and other people filed past him refusing to shake his hand. He was uh, condemned by both sides. But 
The, the pressure then on politicians uh, in the winter of 1860-61 in the face of secession was to um, place, uh, was to accept war, was to accept war rather than confront the alternative which was presented as being concession, as backing down. Uh, only blood can wash out so much innocent blood as slavery has shared, wrote uh, an abolitionist correspondent of um, the main senator, William Pitt Fessenden. Um, a man from Fred Spooner who was not, uh, a man from Rhode Island called Fred Spooner who was not particularly uh, anti-slavery, uh, not an not a, not a, out abolitionist anyway, uh, wrote in a letter on April the 30th, 1861, they, the South, must be put down, conquered, and thoroughly subdued if need be. They have no earthly hope of overcoming this government. Um, both of these people were writing in the aftermath of the firing of the first shots. But they had been saying similar things even before um, the first actual warfare had broken out. Um, uh, politicians' mailbags, in both, both northern politicians and southern politicians' mailbags, were deluged with correspondents uh, imploring them uh, to uh, bring this crisis to a head. The pressure, in other words, um, was for politicians to accept war as an alternative to compromise. Let me just finish with this thought. There is a, an influential, um, in my view, quite surprisingly influential theory that international relations theorists um, talk about called democratic peace theory. And this is the idea that posits that democracies rarely, if ever, go to war with one another. And this is a very problematic theory, not least because of the difficulty of defining democracy and, for that matter, war. Um, and for the lack of empirical data. Um, but it's based on an intuitively plausible assumption, which I think dates back really to Immanuel Kant, which is the idea that the more responsive a government is to public opinion, the less bellicose it's likely to be. I think what uh, the experience of the United States in the 1850s demonstrates is that there are, however, circumstances in which um, war is not merely a uh, demonstration of the failure of democratic processes, but can actually be, the likelihood of war can be exacerbated the more that public opinion uh, in some circumstances is exercised. Thank you. That's great. Thank you very much. We do have some time for questions. Uh, and before I call on anybody, uh, sorry, um, uh, I ask that you wait when I call on you for somebody with a microphone to get to you as all of your questions will be uh, podcasted and broadcasted and all kinds of casted. So uh, do we have any hands? We have one down here and one up there. So if you would go first then. What if the South had won? i.e. in 61 or 62? Um, do, I mean, well, we would be, uh, um, in, all possibility, in all probability, living in a, in a very different world. Um, I, I think uh, that it's... Uh, um, however, the, the difficulty that I, I have, I don't think it's very likely that the South would have won in 1861 or 62. I think it's possible the North might have scored a knockout blow quite early on in the war. Um, I think the South could have won the Civil War, but it would have been a long and drawn-out uh, war. It would have been a matter of persuading the North to stop fighting. 
This issue of public opinion and the importance of it continues to be the critical thing after uh, the war begins. General Lee, the Confederate general, understood exactly that his real target was not so much the Union armies. It wasn't even uh, the capital city, Washington, D.C., per se. It was northern public opinion. That was one of the reasons why he launched the raid into Maryland in 1862 and into Pennsylvania in 1863, to bring the war home to northern onto northern soil and to uh, give um, ammunition to those anti-war um, politicians within the North who were arguing that the price of the main maintaining the Union wasn't worth the cost in, in lives. So the, the Civil War was fought as a battle over public opinion. I mean, in that sense, L Lincoln's phrase, this is a people's contest, was, was, was perhaps more true than he envisaged when he said it. I always understood the backdrop of all this was the struggle to decide whether newly admitted states would be free or slave. Of course, and that debate took place within a, a democratic context. Um, would the, if that struggle had not been occurring, in other words, if well, there were no more um, territories attempting to become uh, states, would the North have felt the need to be anti-slavery? If, if the situation was more stable. Oh, I think you are absolutely right. The critical thing to understand, and of course there's much that I wasn't able to say in my little half hour talk, but the, the critical thing about the, the Civil War is that it takes place in a, in a geographically dynamic situation in which the borders of the United States are constantly, uh, were constantly expanding during the early 19th century. And as you rightly say, the um, dispute over whether to allow slavery in the newly organized territories of Kansas and Nebraska, um, which were organized by Congress as US territories in a bill that went through Congress in 1854, that, um, that conflict was, 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 was a sort of vortex which swept up a lot of other things and which uh, generated a lot of this, these kinds of feelings that I've been talking about in my lecture. You can go back a step further from that and say that if the United States had not launched its uh, um, aggressive war of acquis territorial acquisition against Mexico in the 1840s and had not therefore acquired vast new territories, California, New Mexico, Arizona, all of that great swathe of the United States that came into the Union then, uh, then perhaps the slavery issue could for a time at least have been contained because at least the, the line between slavery and freedom would have been um, specified. Um, even then, though, I mean, what you have to reckon with the uh, imperial ambitions of slaveholders, because, even, because in 1861, and even after the formation of the Confederacy, slaveholders were not just talking about expanding slavery within the Union, they were talking about creating a, a Caribbean slave empire. Uh, expanding into Cuba and into Central America and perhaps even bringing in some of the slave um, republic, the remaining slave states in, in South America, um, such as Brazil, into some great agglomeration. So there was a, an imperial mentality to slaveholders, which many anti-slavery people um, understandably rightly felt that they had to check. But that sense of geographical dynamism is, as you rightly say, critical. More questions. One there. Thank you. Why is there such sense of lingering bitterness, as it seems to me, in the South for the Civil War, when we've practically forgotten the Second World War, let alone the First World War? 
they really hang you on. You mean, why that. is there still such anger and bitterness today? You mean, in we, the yeah, it, we, yeah. Um, well, um, I, I, I mean, the American Civil, I mean, I'm not sure that, um, it, I mean, it's a, the, 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 the American Civil War is the de defining um, event of, in American history. I mean, it shaped everything that's happened subsequently. And, you know, you, you know, I often say when I go into, you know, I talk in schools to sixth formers who are studying the civil rights movement and so on, and I say, you, you know, I always want to make the point to them that you can't understand, you know, why Martin Luther King stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to give his I Have a Dream speech unless you know who Abraham Lincoln was and understand the, the Civil War and its legacy of Reconstruction and the, the amendments, the constitutional amendments that followed and the, the legacy of racial um, segregation that followed the Civil War and the, and, the, and the poverty of the South, which was its sort of most salient characteristic long into the 20th century, uh, was um, um, a fairly direct consequence of the um, the Civil War and the destruction of, of these, this, these millions of dollars of property. You know, Mississippi had been, if you include slave property, the richest state in the Union in 1860. It was the poorest in 1865, and it's pretty much remained there ever since. So the Civil War has that legacy that matters. I think that's, that's, uh, that's one reason. I don't know whether, I mean, there's been, this is the 150th anniversary, and this year there's been a lot of, of the outbreak of the war, and this year there have been some skirmishes um, the Virginia governor um, got into hot water um, uh, by uh, declaring a um, Confederate History Month, um, which, appear, which was um, opposed by the NAACP and by many history professors and seemed to um, be a celebration in its first articulation, seemed to be a celebration of the Confederacy without properly recognizing the legacy of slavery. So there have been some, some um, skirmishes of that kind but, you know, actually, I think what's most interesting about this 150th anniversary is how little of that has been compared, certainly, to the centennial celebrations of the Civil War, which happened, of course, in the 1960s during the Civil Rights Movement. And that was a very tense and complicated time. I mean, you can imagine in 1961 when, when uh, uh, there were celebrations of the creation of the Confederacy, yeah, you know, that would, if you, you imagine how you would, you would feel if you were an African-American in the South in 1861 when they're celebrating the creation of the Confederacy. Obviously, by, 186, by 1963 and 1965, um, the, the, the commemorated events were turning against uh, the white segregationists. So that was a highly politicized um, commemoration. This one, I think, much less so. And the, the demographic of the South is changing so much. Uh, you know, it's no longer now a matter of African-Americans and white folks in most states of the South with a huge rise in the number of um, Hispanic-American people living in the South. Uh, the latest census was quite really striking in showing how much has that changed even in the last 10 years, never mind in the last 50. So I think the question is, in 200 years, in the 200th anniversary of the Civil War, will it still have that power? I don't know. I, want, I suspect it might not. <laughs> but I'm doing myself out of a job in saying that, perhaps. Um, <laughs> we have a question up here. Um, can you make the argument that it was not enough democracy in the South and the fact that Southern politics were dominated by a rich minority? Well, um, they were dominated by a racial majority, actually, strictly speaking, in most states. I mean, there were more white people than, than black people in most uh, Southern states. I mean, you, you, you certainly, I mean, of course, that's, that's, uh, of course it's true that, judged by our standards today, the South was not democratic, and the South wasn't democratic by those standards until after the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Um, but uh, um, 
But it nevertheless was a form of democratic politics predicated on ideas about popular sovereignty, about the engagement in equality, albeit racially constricted, um, which I'm arguing gave the minority of, of, of slaveholders within the, within the white community, which gave that minority the, the um, political power um, that, they, that they did. That you, know, that, that you can't, I think, dismiss the South as, 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 as Lincoln did and as many, and as many uh, Northerners did at the time as being an oligarchical, aristocratic society. I mean, there's, there's some truth in that, of course. But, it, but, it, but compared to real oligarchical, aristocratic societies at the time, the South looks very democratic. It all depends on who you, of, of course, what, what your point of comparison is. Okay, I'm afraid we are running out of time. So if you could join me with one more round of applause for Dr. Smith. Thank you very much. Thank you.